Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. A couple weeks ago, on uh, Pentecost Sunday, I started a series on the Holy Spirit. Last week, we took a closer look at the phenomenon of speaking in tongues, since that seems to be the universal experience of believers who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not only at Pentecost, but in the early church. Whenever we see somebody hearing about and then receiving the Holy Spirit, the immediate evidence was that they began to speak in other tongues. This is how the disciples, the original followers of Christ, knew, for instance, that the gospel had been received even among the Gentiles because they heard them speaking in tongues just like they had. Now, as I mentioned, and I would encourage you, if this is is any way uh, a particular point of interest or you've got particular questions about that and you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that, that recorded message. But also, as I mentioned, we will return to the topic of tongues as we take a closer look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 in the coming weeks. Today, uh, as I mentioned last week, I wanted to take a little extra time and talk some more about the person or the personality of the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned a book, I don't know, I, I saw some heads nod when I mentioned it last week. It's called The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit by R.A. Torrey. Um, and I'll be quoting him today, about a paragraph's worth. Uh, but we might as well start, I think, with the doctrine of the Trinity. This is just gonna, this is not an in-depth teaching on the Trinity. We can do that someday if you want. I just want to point out, uh, I just want to address it shortly because this is a series on the Holy Spirit. And I think all, almost all of you embrace that. I don't know of anybody. I don't know every, what every single one of your uh, specific doctrinal beliefs are. But if you, in general, believe what we believe, then you already believe in the Trinity, right? Uh, but I also think you probably know some people who don't. That's, uh, it's, it's odd to me that that's not a universal uh, doctrine among all those who name the name of Jesus Christ. And we would say that a belief like that places them outside orthodox Christian doctrine. Okay, but that's usually due to a, a, a misunderstanding. Uh, but Trinity, of course, is the doctrine that God, although he is one, O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, right? But he exists in three persons, co-equal but distinct, and they differ in manifestations, uh, and they differ in some specific functions, but they are utterly one in agreement, in purpose, in holiness, and in love. In fact, the very statement, God is love, that truth, which we know is, is, in the, is from the Word of God, that's a huge clue to the Trinitarian nature of God. Because love can't exist in a vacuum. Love does require an object. We talked about this, uh, I've mentioned this several times, and I can't remember what the specific context was the last time I brought it up, but it wasn't that long ago. When we talk about the creation of man, why did God create man? Uh, he was lonely. He was all by himself. He was the only one, and he wanted company, so he created man. No, we know that's not true. Um, but 
God is love and love requires an object is closer to the truth. Uh, and where we landed, by the way, is God is love and love does not withhold that which it has the power to give. All that to say, he created us not because he needed us, but because he could. He wasn't willing to withhold life from us, even though we wouldn't have known it. He created us for our sake so that we could enjoy him. Meanwhile, where was all that love going? If love requires an object, who, who was God loving? God the Father was loving God the Son. God the Father was loving God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit was loving God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son was loving God, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There was perfect love, perfect community, perfect fellowship in the Trinity. Okay? This is what, what, what do we see right off the bat, practically, is let us make man in our image. There's a conversation there among the Godhead, a unity of purpose. The famous passage in Isaiah, which includes the here am I, Lord, send me. Uh, the, the, uh, the Old Testament speaks, says clearly, this is you know, when you receive the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is Jehovah, God the Father speaking, whom shall we send? But when Paul refers to this very passage in Acts chapter 28, he attributes those words to the Holy Ghost. The Spirit said this. And in John 12, the same thing, and it's stated a little less clearly, but it's there if you want to check it out, is attributed to Jesus saying these things. God the Son saying these things. You can check those things out, how interchangeable that is. And again, it's not just different words for the same exact being. There's, it's just an expression of just how perfectly unified the Trinity is. Someone always asks, or points out, rather, that uh, well, the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible, and that's true. Uh, and there's a number of words. Of course, the word rapture is not in the Bible, but neither are words like omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and a host of other words that are common and correct theological terms. Just because the specific term is not in the Bible doesn't mean it's incorrect or not valid. Uh, for that matter, you know what else, what other word isn't in the Bible as we use it? The word Bible, okay? Now, another uh, quick observation about the Trinity is this, uh, and this is the Trinity in general before we move on to the Holy Spirit in particular. God, the Trinitarian Godhead, said again in Genesis, let us make man in our image. And then we read in Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. So it says that man and woman were created in the likeness, in the image of God. They are of absolute equal worth. They were absolutely, are absolutely equal in essence, but obviously they fulfill different roles. They function differently, but woman is not less than man. Okay? We are all fully human. We are all mankind. We, man and woman, was created in the image of God. Is there a difference? Yes, but is it, is a, is it a uh, vertical difference? Is it a, well, he's up here, she's down here, or vice versa? No, it's just a difference in function. 
In the same way, Jesus is no less than the Father. The Holy Spirit is no less than Jesus. They are co-equal, all 100% God. They fulfill different functions. They manifest themselves in different ways. All right? This, uh, and this, um, well, let me skip that for now. There's more we can say about the Trinity. Of course there is. But my main point here is that the Holy Spirit does, again, not occupy some lesser status than the Father and the Son. He is God, the Holy Spirit. He speaks, he knows, he loves. And, uh, you know, this likeness between man and woman, who are both image bearers of God, is only a reflection, and sometimes not a great one because of the way we live it out, of the likeness or oneness of the Trinity. Isn't it interesting? And I don't know if we hit, hammered this last week, but I know in the first, the first week on Pentecost Sunday, we were talking about Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. Remember, they're, they're, he's trying to, hey, look, I'm going, and you can't follow me where I'm going. Then they can't imagine anything worse. Oh, Lord, where are you going that we can't follow? And what does he tell them? It's expedient for you that I go away. This is actually, this is ad, actually advantageous because if I go, the Holy Spirit's coming in my place. And that's going to be better for you because he's going to indwell each one of you. And yet, how can he say he's leaving and sending somebody else and then also turn around and say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How can he say that? The same way he can say when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. And what does Jesus say? How long have I been with you? If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. It's the same thing. Again, are they, are they literally the same thing? Only in the sense that they are 100% alike. There's not any shadow of turning. There's no disagreement. There is perfect 100% unity and agreement in the Godhead. If you've heard me speak, you've heard what the Father says. If you've seen me heal, you've seen what the fa how the Father treats sickness. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the truth he speaks is my truth. It's the Father's truth. We are all speaking with the same voice. The difference is, I am here with you. He's going to be in you. And that's the same thing. Well, so are we wrong saying, I invite Jesus into my heart? Well, the Holy, you know, another name for the Holy Spirit is what? The Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ who indwells us. Same Spirit, same knowledge, same power. Now, uh, in that, all that to say the Holy Spirit being here with us and in us is essentially the same thing as Jesus Christ himself living in us. And when we say the Holy Spirit is a person, we have to understand that we are talking about personality, personal characteristics. We are not talking about humanness. To say that he's a person is not to say that he is a man or a human being. We're not talking, of course, about a physical body. The Holy Spirit has knowledge. The Holy Spirit has a will. And when, even when we talk about revelation or illumination when it comes to the, uh, knowing God and the things of his kingdom, we are not talking about some vague influence. We are talking about someone, the Holy Spirit, who knows these things and shares them with us, speaks them to, to us, causes us to know what he knows. 
Let's look. We're not going to look at, at the gifts of the Spirit today, but right there, after Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right after listing the gifts of the Spirit, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. He, the Holy Spirit, has a will, and he determines... And it's according to the counsel of his own will that he distributes the gifts that we're going to be talking about in these future weeks. And most of you are familiar with them. And here's where I'm going to quote Tori, uh, who I referenced last week, because this is perhaps the single most important thing we can know about the Holy Spirit and his working in our lives. And this is fairly early on in the book. But he writes this right after referencing the verse I just read. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Let me read it again. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And then Tori continues. Here, will is ascribed to the spirit. And we are taught that the Holy Spirit is not a power that we get hold of and use according to our will but a person of sovereign majesty who uses us according to his will. I want to read that again, but I'm going to continue on because he just reinforces the same point. This distinction is of fundamental importance in our getting into right relation with the Holy Spirit. It is at this very point that many honest seekers after power and efficiency in service go astray. Now listen, let me interrupt here. He's talking about earnest seekers after power for service. This is a good thing. He's not putting down this class of people. There are people who long for power to more efficiently serve God. And he's saying this is exactly where we miss it sometimes. Why? They are, they are reaching out after and struggling to get possession of some mysterious and mighty power that they can make use of in their work according to their own will. Even if the work they aspire to is good work, this is how they view the Holy Spirit. I need this power so that I can go out and do my will, my will, even though I think it's serving God. All right, back to quoting him. They will never get possession of the power they seek until they come to recognize that there is not some divine power for them to get hold of and use in their blindness and ignorance, but that there is a person infinitely wise as well as infinitely mighty who is willing to take possession of them and use them according to his own perfect will. Is that fantastic? That's probably not the right word. Is that wonderful? When we stop to think of it, I love this, we must rejoice that there is no divine power that being so ignorant as we are, so liable to err, to get hold of and use. How appalling might be the results if there were. But what a holy joy must come into our hearts when we grasp the thought that there is a divine person, one who never errs, one who is willing to take possession of us and impart to us such gifts as he sees best and to use us 
according to his wise and loving will. Do you get that? I don't want to keep, I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to make sure everybody gets that. Because again, now listen, I'm, I'm going to tread very lightly here. I'm going to try not to be flip about this, but this is why it bothers me. And people get carried away. Let me, let me just back up here a second. You know, one of my, the most comforting verses, tiny little pieces of a verse either, of the Bible uh, for me is in Psalm 103 where it says, he knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. Okay, he knows what we're made of. And when we say something stupid, when we do something stupid, even when we sin, God is not looking for an excuse to swat us, to smack us. And when we get carried away with something, there is mercy as long as we come before him and allow him to correct us and speak correction and work correction in our lives. So the, the thing I'm about to describe is just one, in the grand scheme of things, it's one tiny little manifestation or error, I believe, and ministers that I still adore and respect have operated in this capacity. But it's thankfully not something we see much of anymore. But when you see in, uh, again, and I, I referenced the laughter meetings and the drunkenness, things that people have genuinely experienced and things that we have to be careful not to ever dismiss because God can manifest himself anyway as long as it doesn't violate his word. But when the speaker starts doing things like this, pow, pow, and people are falling down. And, I mean, I've seen them wave their jacket like, uh, like they're, uh, what do you call them, the bullfighter, behind their back, trick shots, shooting people down with the Holy Ghost. Now, is the Holy Spirit actually knocking them down in those cases? I don't know. I don't know. Here is why it concerns me. Uh, do you remember me telling you a story? And it might have been the last time we spoke about tongues. About watching something happen between two ministers, both of whom I could name, but, both of, but neither of whom I will, in front of probably 15, 20,000 people began to have a conversation in tongues. Back and forth, no interpretation, both of them with microphones, but having what appeared to be a personal conversation in tongues. Now, if I wanted to play the apologist for that, I would say, look, these are two guys who are operating in the Spirit. Maybe they're having, like on the day of Pentecost, maybe it was a combination. They're not hearing the tongues. They're hearing English. Maybe the, the, the interpretation is going on so fast. But frankly, if i got to be super honest, I think it's two guys that just got carried away. I don't think they understood each other at all. I think they got swept up in a moment, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nobody else could be edified by what they were saying. They weren't praising God. You know, if we, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's nothing unscriptural about all of us in here. There might be 100 in, in this room right now, never mind the whole church. There might be 120 people in here, 110, 115, I don't know. And if we all stood up and started praising the Lord in tongues, that does not violate the warning against only two or three, one at a time, must be interpreted. No, as, as we're going to see, that's specifically talking about public utterances that are addressed to the congregation. All right? We can all praise him in tongues. 
This isn't what was happening. These were public utterances. These were utterances made publicly through a sound system, one person talking to another. How is that edifying the group? I'm telling you, the upshot of it was this. You've got 15,000 people, 20,000 people, and thousands and thousands more watching this on video later saying, wow, those are two spiritual giants. They operate on such a plane that they converse in tongues of angels. That's going beyond Scripture. I don't believe that's what was... Again, I, think, I don't think they were being malicious. I think they were getting carried away. But it gives us this notion, similarly, God might be doing some mighty works in our midst that manifests in interesting and maybe ways that make us uncomfortable. But when a guy comes in and starts doing the kapow, kapow, whether we want to admit it or not, we say, there's somebody who really knows how to use the Holy Spirit. There's somebody who wields the Holy Spirit. When he comes in, he can really sling the Holy Spirit. What, it's exactly what Tori's describing here. I want to get a hold of that power so that I can knock people down when I blow on them, when I wave my jacket, when I point my finger and stuff. And it reduces the Holy Spirit to this force. Can you see why Peter got so mad when Simon offered him money? Hey, give me this power also so that whoever I lay my hands on can be filled with the Spirit. It wasn't just a matter of you're not worthy of this power. It's you can't buy and sell a person, let alone the person of the Holy Spirit. But I love how he put this here. The Holy Spirit is not some divine power that we get a hold of and use. He is a divine person who gets a hold of us and uses us according to his will. We have to be yielded to him. We have to be filled with him. That, that, that's an amen. That should not disappoint you in the slightest. I love the warning there. Can you imagine if we could get a hold of the power of God with however messed we... I know we're saved, you understand? How many of you have ever had a selfish moment, an angry moment? You ever do this thing, if looks could kill? You know, what if just in a, you've got unlimited access to the power of God, but it's at your discretion how it's used? Would any of us be alive today? No, the power of God can only be trusted with God himself. And it is simply a privilege that he indwells us and manifests him, his power through us. So that when, in accordance to his will, only as I'm led by him, when I lay hands on the sick, they recover. When I lay hands on somebody who desires to receive the Holy Spirit, guess what? They receive him too, and he's now indwelling us both. But it's his idea. It's his will. We aren't using him. He, there's a great, you know, there was a, boy, Jason, some rabbits I seem like to, I feel like today, but that's okay. I was a huge, huge, huge Star Wars fan when the first movie came out, the good one, right? The, uh, and uh, of course, everybody was trying to capitalize on it. You know, you had uh, 
all sorts of uh, books and t-shirts and all these spin-off series and things that had nothing to do with the original Star Wars, but the idea. And one of the things I remember seeing uh, shortly after we moved to Rama, which wasn't that long, moved to Broken Arrow so Dad could go to Rama, which wasn't that long after the original Star Wars came out, was a picture very reminiscent of the actual uh, movie poster, you know, where you got Luke holding the lightsaber above his head, and there's some guy vaguely looking like that. And it's written in the same font, and it says, The Force of Star Wars. And in uh, my naivete, I said, oh, I, you've got to get me this book, because this is whoever's associated with the movie is going to tell us what this is about, because this was in a Christian bookstore. And all it was was a guy pulling out, uh, this is, we're going to use Star Wars as a biblical allegory. And, uh, you know, Darth Vader was Judas Iscariot, of all people. I thought they should have made him the devil, but no. What they did was the dark side of the force is the devil, and the force is God. Now, right off the bat, we got a problem here because God and the devil are not equals. You know, the devil is not the dark side of God. He's, he's a fallen angel. He's a created being. Uh, but the only reason I brought Star Wars up is what, at this climactic moment when Luke is driving through the trench around the Death Star, he hears Ben Kenobi say what? Use the force, Luke. And this is what I think. It's all Star Wars' fault that we think of the Holy Spirit this way. Oh, you're not doing enough? you got to use the Holy Spirit. You don't use the Holy Spirit. What's the key? Let the Holy Spirit use you, Luke, and everybody else. The Word of God speaks of the love of the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit, the will of the Spirit about the Spirit interceding for us, and about the Spirit being grieved. So we have thoughts, will, love, emotion, knowledge. All of these things speak very clearly of the personality of the Holy Spirit. And when we truly grasp this, when we understand that knowledge of the Holy Spirit as a person as a member of the Godhead, is about more than power in the traditional sense. I mean, when we think of the power, when Jesus said, tarry you here in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, for then you will receive power. To do what? To be my witnesses. But also, we know that that's the power to fulfill the Great Commission, which included laying hands on the sick, right? Treading on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Miracles. Uh, yes, yeah, scorpions. I said that, Emily. I can see your snarky lips move from clear up here. Uh, serpents and scorpions. Serpents and scorpions. Anyway, serpents and scorpions. All over the power of the enemy. Signs and wonders. How many of you are convinced, without me going any further in the, in the teaching on the gifts of the Spirit, that signs, miracles, and wonders, healings, casting out devils, that that's all for today? Five of you are doctrinally correct, and the rest of you, get out! Might as well go to the Methodist. Oh, I'm kidding. How many of you believe that signs, wonders, miracles, healings, and casting out devils are for today? Of course we're supposed to do this, right? Uh, and we can't do that until we receive power. And that power comes when the Holy Spirit indwells us, all right? But... Uh, there's more to doing, there's more to the power than doing the things that require that power in terms of the activities, the signs, wonders, miracles, casting out devils, healing people. There's the power to be witnesses in the sense of living 
as a good and accurate representation of the one who has filled us with his power. It's the power to live a life that's consistent with the notion that the Holy Ghost has truly changed us. It's a matter of living a life that's consistent with the notion that the gospel I'm preaching can save you, can change you, can transform your life. Healings, miracles, casting out devils, all of these will bear witness to the power of the Holy Spirit. But I still, and most of you would agree, looking over your own life, the most powerful witness to the gospel itself is the transformed life of a believer. Only the Holy Spirit can empower us to do that. And if we can cultivate an awareness of his constant presence, nothing will come close to doing as much to lead us and empower us to live holy lives. In other words, it's not a kaboom, something happened. It's a, the more aware I am of him as a person in me, with me constantly, that itself will do more to transform me and make me holy than anything else. Praise and worship team, you can be on your way up here. I'm not quite done, but I'm getting there. And you coming up here will remind me that I'm getting there. Think about this, and this is a lead-in to where we're going next week, and you don't want to miss it. If he indwells me, he, not it, that means he sees everything I look at, he hears everything I say and everything I listen to, he even knows everything I think and meditate on. Where does your imagination take you? But... If I know that, if I become intensely aware that he is right there watching what I watch, hearing what I hear, hearing what I say, knowing what I think about, is that going to make a difference in my life? Why does the Holy Spirit not make a difference in the lives of more believers? Not because he doesn't indwell us. It's because we don't meditate or cultivate an awareness of his presence. This is where we're going next week. If the power of God is really enough to transform your life, if the saving power of God, the same power, if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, how can that not make a difference in your life, in my life, in the lives of so many believers? And yet, you don't need to raise your hands on this one. How many of you can say, Man, I've gone whole periods of my Christian life where, honestly, I didn't feel like I was thinking any different, living any different than the people around me. Maybe you never doubted your salvation. But how can we look around and see so many? How can we often be the person whose life is not fundamentally different in so many different ways than the unsaved person, than the unbaptized in the spirit person? I'm going to tell you why it is, and it's a pretty simple answer next week. I want to warn you right off the bat that um, if we're not careful, this can get unhealthy. To, to do this right, it has to be in the context of a loving, loving relationship, not just with each other, but with the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise... This cultivate, cultivating an awareness of the Holy Spirit and judging our lives by that can turn very quickly from God consciousness to sin consciousness. 
and that always leads to legalism. And we slip into fear. In other words, oh, I just thought of something. I just watched something. I just said something that made God mad at me, and now I'm doomed. I might go to heaven, but punishment's coming because I've just violated this holy oath, and this is not the way to do it. Rather, what we should do is be reminded that the Holy Spirit, who loves us with an infinite love, can be grieved by our actions, by our decisions, by our thoughts. And if we love him like we love those who are closest to us here, we're going to do what we do in these relations. There are certain things I'm going to avoid, certain things I'm not going to do, certain things I'm going to say just because I love you and want to please you. How you want to love and please your spouse, your children, your parents. Honor them. And it's not something we generally have to work at because we see each other and we know we love each other. But again, the Spirit, sometimes he's just a force. And if we think of him as a person who loves us and is with us, we're just going to, it'll become second nature not to do the things that grieve him and, on the positive side, to want to do the things that please him. Stand up with me. It doesn't work perfectly. Clearly it doesn't. I'm going to tell some stories about you guys next week. No, I'm not. I don't want you telling stories about me either. But we can see it in others, can't we? And sometimes we forget that others can see it in us. But only if we're really honest, and certainly if we seek God about it, can we see it in ourselves. The failure to live like we really believe God is with us and in us. And again, next week we will talk specifically about why that is. Meanwhile, sorry to leave on a note like that. It's actually not a bad thing. Actually not a bad place to leave off. Because I just want to remind you, uh, as, and we'll come at, we'll wrap up with an altar call like this in every one of these messages. That the Holy Spirit is not God's gift to the world. Jesus is God's gift to the world. And Jesus is the one who said, the one who's coming after me, the one whom the Father sends when I go, when I leave you, uh, the world cannot receive him. You can receive him if you've been made clean. But that's where it's got to start. Have you been made clean by the blood of the Savior? How? I don't know. How do I know? Have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? Do you recognize that your only hope of salvation, the only hope you have of being a fit uh, residence for the Holy Spirit, is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that can make us clean. God looks at us, and he knows our frame. He knows what we're made of. He knows where we, uh, where we came from, what our origin is, even going, going back before the fall, but certainly since the fall, there's nothing we can do to be good enough for him. Our sins cry out for judgment. So he takes your sin, my sin, our sin, the sin of the world, places it on Jesus, and lets judgment fall on him. So the sin debt's been paid. And we look and say, I know that was for me, that, that was necessary for me, and I need that. I believe Jesus Christ is Lord, and I believe God raised him from the dead, just as the Bible says. Jesus, I want you to be not just the Lord, but my Lord. That's salvation. If you need to make that decision, I'm going to invite you up here to pray with you in just a minute. If, as I suspect, most of you have prayed that prayer, 
I got to ask you, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Well, I don't believe like I've received the Holy Spirit when I believed. This is what the disciples asked these believers in the book of Acts. They didn't question their belief. They didn't question their salvation. They said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? No, we never heard of this Holy Spirit. So that's when they prayed them, prayed for them, and that's when they received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This isn't all about tongues. I'm not going to make you speak in tongues. I believe it's something you'll be able to do, a prayer language. We'll get into the details of that in a week or two. Only thing I want you to focus on right now is, do you believe what Jesus said? Don't go out. I need you to obey me. This is how you love me. If you love me, you keep my commandments. I'm going to command you to do this. But guess what? Don't try it until you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Because that's the only time you'll receive power, the ability to do it, when he comes and dwells in you. Since you believe, have you received the Holy Spirit? And if you haven't, I want to invite you, and I will just lay my hands on you. That doesn't have to happen. This is just what I'm doing today. I just want to agree with you. I want my, my hands to be a physical point of contact. Uh, and we will join our faith in, in simply receiving what God... Well, what if it doesn't happen? It'll happen. What's it going to feel like? Might not feel like anything. How do you know it's going to happen? Because he said he would always answer that question in the affirmative. I will never withhold the Holy Spirit from those that ask. If you desire to be saved, you desire to fill with the Spirit, as soon as I'm done praying this prayer, don't waste another minute. Come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this service. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here in our midst. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood that saves us, washes us clean. And Holy Spirit, I'm doing what your word says only you can do. Convict the hearts of sinners who don't know you. Convince them that they don't know you, that they need to know you, of sin that they need to be saved from. Grant those who need salvation the knowledge that they need salvation. Grant them the boldness to come and receive it now, the wisdom to recognize it, the humility to publicly admit that need, but most of all, Lord, just the urgency to come and receive it now. For every believer in this room, Lord, I pray that you cause them to experience a deeper desire than ever before to walk in the power that you, provi you provided when you sent God the Holy Spirit to dwell with us and in us. If there's a believer in here who has not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, Lord, cause them to ask themselves, why not? What am I waiting on? I need him in my life. Thank you, Lord, for hearing these prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.